You're listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Amen. You may be seated. And kids, you are free to go. We've got Mr. Ben. Go ahead, kids, and enjoy kids' church with them. Everyone else, I want to quote a verse to begin. I want to quote a verse for us here to start off. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? That's a pretty, pretty cold statement, don't you think? I have loved you, and then your answer is, how have you loved us? That right there is about as cold of an open as cold opens get in the word of God. And uh, I think we all know what a cold open is, right? Uh, usually this is like in, in TV shows or, or, or in, you know, especially in comedies where before you even have the title credits, like uh, you, you just go right into the story. It's like a narrative device, and we've played around with it in the Doxa Dialogue. Malachi opens with a cold open. Before you even really know what you're about to read, he just slams the reader with this statement. God loves you. And the response is, how? How does God love me? That's where we're at with this book as we start. This is the kind of book we have. And obviously... You know, if, if you would tell someone that you love them, you would expect to hear some type of answer of like, I love you too, right? We have some engaged couples in the room, and I mean, you know, the engaged couples, they, they go on and on and on almost, almost too far with the whole, I love you more. And, and no, we, we don't have anything like that here. We just have this cold statement, and if you're keeping score at home, Malachi has a cold open in more than one way, right? Like, he hit us with this verse, and the statement in this verse is extremely cold. Now, I fully realize most of us are pretty unfamiliar with Malachi. Malachi is not helping us out by understanding where we're at, who he is, by the way he opened up this book. But I want to help you understand a little bit about Malachi before we fully dive in, invest into this whole thing. I also realize that so many of us um, don't honestly have a clue with, with, with who Malachi is and where we're at in a book like this. Not everyone, because there's some people in our church who I've talked with like this week, and they've told me a few things about Malachi that I didn't even realize, um, that I haven't even gotten to yet as I've been studying this book. But, I mean, if I was to, like, ask for a show of hands, I don't, you don't have to raise your hand on this, like, I would say some of you would be like, if I said, hey, would you like to come up, share three truths about Malachi with the whole church? Either do that or just, you know, pound sand for an hour and a half straight. Like, some of us would rather just pound sand, right? Rather than, like, come up here and, and talk about Malachi. If that's where you're at, don't worry, you're not alone, but you're in the right place. We're going to help you understand not necessarily why you need to learn about Malachi, but why you need to learn the message of Malachi. You're in the right place for that because this series and this, especially this message today, is going to affect who we are and where we're going forward, even in turbulent times that our nation is facing. So 
let's fix that issue. And before we read the first five verses, and then usually that's what I would do at this time. For those of you who are new, I usually I just go right into reading the text. I want to tell you a little bit more than Malachi did about himself. So often as, as we have introductory sermon series, um, I'm going to step outside of the immediate context for a second and do something with the greater context of Scripture to paint some background for you. Because you're, you're not going to get a whole lot from Malachi. The first words of Malachi were, uh, Malachi, the prophet of the Lord, has an oracle for you. I mean, that's, that's all we get about Malachi, and we don't get anything else. I need to turn to Malachi myself here. Uh, it's the last book of the Old Testament, if you're still trying to find it. Um, all right, so the first point today is understand how you fit into God's narrative. As we look at this introduction of Malachi, it's going to give a lot of insight into how we should look at ourselves. Malachi does give as little as possible about himself. He barely mentions um, that he's the author, and then he just goes right in. And for the rest of this book, we aren't going to hear much about his perspective or his opinion or even his own personal experiences. His name only appears once in all of Scripture, and it's right here in verse 1. And as we go through this book, you're going to learn that the Apostle Paul quotes Malachi in Romans 9. We're going to, we're going to cover that soon. Uh, the teaching of Malachi is embedded into the New Testament church. But you don't walk away from this book thinking about Malachi. The message you get here is the doctrine of God and who he is and what he expects from his people because of who God is. Now, if we could go all Sherlock Holmes on Malachi and deduct some nuggets about him from, from this book and just the rest of Scripture from a purely systematic approach, you have the whole historical perspective scholars who say, hey, look, there's a huge Persian influence here in this book. And that's because Persia was the world superpower at, at Malachi's time. He would have grown up with that presence in his life. So that's there. He's obviously not afraid to hit hard and hit often. That's his personality that comes across through the written word. But he writes this entire prophecy in a way that elevates God as he just fades away into the background. Think of it like a really great worship experience, right? When, when we worship a doxa, we're not, our goal isn't to say, oh, wow, that's a great guitar player, and she has such a beautiful voice. Our goal is to worship Jesus Christ and to lift God up. And to walk away saying, wow, God is amazing. Praise God. That's exactly what Malachi does with his writing style. That's what you're getting here. Malachi, you don't get Malachi is great. You get God is great. He knew his place. He understood where he fit in with God's grand narrative. And in writing the way he writes, he's exemplifying that God is great and people are small. You're going to see that as we go through the rest of this book. And maybe you've heard of that, that book, When People Are Big and God Is Small. Anyone ever heard of that book? A book by Ed Welch. Uh, it's a great book about overcoming peer pressure and, and, and the codependency that we have, you know, struggles that we can have, the fear of man. Malachi has no fear of man in this book, and one of the residual effects of not worrying about what other people are going to think of you or say about you is that you just tell the truth and get yourself out of the way. 
The things that Malachi has to talk about are bigger than himself. He wants you to know God and to see the heart of God, and he does not care if you remember him or not. The question I have for you, is that the way you look at yourself? Are you more about building God's thing, or are you more about building your thing? Malachi knew good and well how he fit into God's narrative. He was God's messenger. He existed to point people to his God. That was his priority. Worship God and teach his loved ones, his neighbors, how to worship God from a pure heart. That's where we're going in this series. And you have to ask yourself that question. Is worshiping God your number one priority? Or is your story, the story of your life about how you can have a better life? Or how you can be happy, or how you can, you know, clench the pearls of all that you hold sacred in this present temporary side of eternity. Where you fit in with, with God's narrative, we're going to talk a little bit about this, but you are so much more than just a carbon footprint. You have an eternal soul that is designed to be in relationship with God and with other humans. You're hardwired to impact others with your words and with your actions. Now, this is a side point, but we're here, and I feel like I, I need to discuss this and, and share this to clarify. With, without God, where do you fit in in the grand area? Without God, you don't really have any value or worth. <laughs> but you were made in God's image, so you do. You have all the value and worth in the world. But we're in a culture that is quickly shedding its God-given worth and value and sacrificing it on the altar of science, or in many cases, pseudoscience. And, and if you believe this lie that, well, you know, God didn't really create me. I don't really have a creator who has authority over my life, who's revealed his will to me. And you just, you're left with, at the end of the day, okay, I'm a random sequences of ones and zeros. What kind of hope do you really have in this world? What, what hope do you have when the things that you enjoy and the things that you live for are taken away? And that's really what we're seeing today in our nation, especially. We have a generation that has grown up, and for the vast majority of these souls, God has been ripped out of their education, and their true identity as being a human being is, is lost. And they go through pain, and they see lack of justice, and they are left with anger and bitterness. They have no hope. So when isolation and suffering comes into play, which they always do because we are living in a sin-cursed world, those people who don't know their place in the grand narrative are left with depression and hopelessness. If you know Jesus Christ today, you have hope. And you're looking for hope that is bigger than yourself that's in Jesus. That's what we're living for. So yes, Malachi is the final revelation of Scripture of the entire Old Testament. This is not only like in your Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament, but chronologically, it's the last prophecy before Jesus would come 400 years later. And yes, Malachi is the contemporary of Nehemiah. He's the contemporary of Ezra. His writings come a few years after the temple has been rebuilt. But he knew where he fit into God's narrative, and he never lost sight of the message of truth. I heard a message by 
G. Campbell Morgan on the book of Malachi, and you know, this is a recording. It wasn't like this, he, he's dead, but this was a recording that he pre preached years ago um, when he pastored Westminster Chapel in London the, during the first half of the 20th century. And he spent his entire opening of his sermon on Malachi talking about how the prophets are more in line with modern mankind than even the apostolic authors of the New Testament. Now, I know that may catch you off guard if you first hear about that. Like, what? The prophets? They have more in common with us than the apostles of the New Testament? So here's your last sub-point from this systematic theological opening angle that we have in this first point. Before, you know, just to cover one more piece of background, I know in the cold opening, you were just, you're just ready for this opening jingle to be over, right? Like, just get into the verses, David, please. I know, but hold, hold tight with me. One more thing. The apostles had just walked with Jesus. They had a fresh perspective, you know, that I wish we had, but let's be real. Honestly, we don't have that experience, and we don't have that perspective, at the time of Malachi, the people had been waiting for generations for the promised Messiah. Think about that. So tell me, in that specific area, who do we have more in common with? The disciples who were telling firsthand stories of Jesus and the, and the world was getting turned upside down with the undeniable rest, you know, restoration of Jesus Christ and what he was doing in the world? Or is it God's people who are waiting and waiting and waiting while their present circumstances get darker and darker and darker. Do you see why here at Doxa Church we take the time to have series in the Old Testament prophets? We can't ignore these truths. Also, just think about Roman, what Romans 15 verse 4 has to say. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. If you need more evidence that what Malachi wrote wasn't just for his immediate context, look no further than this verse right here. This is a preserved record of who our God is, and it's timeless in its application, not just for its local ancient context, but for us right now. This book helps you find your place in God's grand narrative because Malachi's times aren't that much different than ours. Just, just think about his background. People are living in an okay, decently comfortable environment. It's not perfect, but it's been worse. And things are starting to head downhill again because God's people, after years and years of waiting, have by and large grown cold and apathetic. And they give a head nod to faith, they give a head nod to worship, but it really comes, when it really comes down to it all, they spend a lot of their time pursuing their own pleasures, relaxing on the weekends. They don't have an urgency and a craving to gather with God's people and to worship God the right way. That's the context that Malachi was experiencing. Does it sound familiar to you at all? So if you really want to know what someone like that thinks deep down, this person who is apathetic and cold towards genuine worship, what is that person really thinking? If you could read their thoughts, the cold open of Malachi was what? God says, I love you. But you say, how have you loved me? So are you ready to hear God's answer that comes through the prophetic oracle of Malachi? You ready to finally get into this? 
We're past the jingle. We're past the cold open. Here we go. Let's read verses 2 through 5. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals, to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So a lot there, you're like, wow, I wasn't expecting that answer from God. (laughs) Notice that this is a very similar question, though, to what we just talked about last week when we finished Romans 8. And the answer that we're getting here from Malachi 1 is even quoted by Paul in Romans 9, but there's so much to unpack. So let's move right into point number two. Number two is, point number two is, resist the what have you done for me lately mentality. Resist the what have you done for me lately mentality. The song we just said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. That is a song where you are resisting that mentality to think about what God has done for me lately because I'm not feeling it. And you forget everything he's done for you in the past. I just talked a lot about this in the introductory point, so I'm not going to spend much more time on this, but what have you done for me lately? That, that ideology is not a phenomena that was created in the 21st century pop culture, okay? That wasn't even from 20th century American sports, which is definitely like lived on the what have you done for me lately mentality. It's a condition of fallen mankind from the very beginning. And you could see it all the way back in Genesis where Adam and Eve had everything. They walked with God. They talked with God. Their environment was sinless. But when Satan spoke to Eve with half-truths and spun a message that God is holding out on you, he identified the one thing that Adam and Eve were not to touch. They had this feeling, this same feeling, where they put aside everything God had done for them, and they focused on the one thing that they wanted and they couldn't have. And they sinned against God. We see it everywhere today. Malachi saw it in his day. And if anything should terrify you, we're going to see really really into next week that this is something that should terrify you, this, this feeling of you forget everything God has done for you and you solely focus on the one thing that you don't have right now that you wish you had, the what have you done for me lately mentality. That should terrify you. I don't think a political leader that you didn't vote for should terrify you. I don't think uh, anything that this, this life has to throw your way should terrify you because we saw last week, nothing can separate you from the love of God. If you are in Christ, you are secure in his hands. You, have no, you literally have nothing to fear about, but you should be concerned and you should be aware that your heart is prone to wander. That, that is a reality of who you are all the way up until glorification. So nothing that Paul talked about in Romans 8 last week should terrify you. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, or sword. No, in all those things, in Christ Jesus, we are more than conquerors 
So don't worry about that, but you can personally get in a very dark and lonely spot when you elevate the thing that you don't understand. When you focus on what you don't know more than what you do know, the fact that God loves you. So when I say this should terrify you, I don't mean to freak out and go unhinged and worry that, you aren't, that you're going to lose your faith at some point. No, I just mean have awareness that this is inside your flesh, and you're going to have a battle on your hands, spiritual warfare, which, which is a battle for truth in your mind, and consistently turn to the truth. When the world is upside down, and good is being called evil, and evil is being called good, you have to resist the urge to shake your fist at God and cry out, what are you doing? Because it's the same thing as saying, what have you done for me lately? And it's the same thing as saying, God, how have you loved me? Instead, say, you forgave me. I didn't deserve that. And if I get nothing else from you for the rest of my life, I've already received more than I ever deserved. Do you know that to be true in your life? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you should. Our life group is talking about this just this week. We have already been given more than enough. But in the moment of crisis, when we're tempted to forget where we fit into God's grand narrative, we're tempted to forget everything he's done for us. And like a fickle sports fan who is already ready to anoint the next savior of their sports team, they're already ready just to throw away that $75 jersey of the guy they defended and praised for like three years. And the second he twists his ankle and blows that one game, like, it's on to the next guy. All right? We cannot be that way. Bring the posture into your relationship with God that says, you know what's going on even when I don't know what's going on. Don't be so fickle. Now we're finally going to get into God's answer here, and you can see why I've been like saving this, right? Was, was it confusing to anyone? <laughs> I mean, if you have not read Malachi lately, you're probably like, what is he going to even say about this? Because that was slightly weird, right? Well, we're going we're gonna to go there. And I promise you the rest of this series is going to move along a lot faster than this message has been moving along. This is definitely unique, a unique sermon in that sense. Um, it's not normal, normal for me to cover a verse and a half and be halfway done with the message. Um, this prophecy is going to go full steam ahead. We're going to take it one chapter at a time. We only have five weeks here in this book. But God's answer is where we're going to spend the rest of the time today. So here's the third point. Treasure the family secrets. Treasure the family secret. And I know you're, I'm just killing some of you today. You're going to have to hang tight a little bit longer. Um, if you don't already know what the family secret is, I will tell you soon. Don't worry. Some of you probably know what the family secret is. You just don't know that you know what the family secret is. But this is so good, it's worth the tease, okay? Um, we have to talk about Esau and Jacob first. All right, Esau and Jacob. I'm going to prime the pump a little bit. They were twin brothers, we're going to go into some Old Testament patriarchy for history for a second because that's God's answer, right? And I want you to understand this. So, so who were Esau and Jacob besides being twin brothers? Who was their father? Does anybody know who Esau and Jacob's father was? Isaac, yes. And Isaac's father was Abraham. Um, so Abraham, the nomadic man living in the pagan land of Ur, who God, out of nowhere chose to bless. Abraham was not seeking after God. 
Abraham wasn't, wasn't living for God. Abraham did not know God, right? God chose Abraham. God chose Abraham and said, through your lineage, I am going to bring a savior of the world. So what is this business with Abraham's grandsons, Jacob and Esau, doing in this answer? For the cold-hearted person who's apathetic, who's living a comfortable, semi-comfortable life and just shaking their fist at God and wondering, well, God, how do you really love me? Seriously. Why did Malachi answer it with, with Esau and Jacob? Well, Esau was the firstborn of, firstborn of Isaac, and Jacob came out seconds later, Genesis tells us, grasping onto his older brother's heel. Now, we're going to fast forward through all the rich background of what we know about Jacob and Esau, but I'll tell you a couple things, okay? Esau was a mighty man. He was a hunter. He was skillful with his hands. And Jacob is more, and I almost hate saying this phrase, but like Jacob was more of what you would call a mama's boy. Genesis says that he was a dweller of tents, okay? So um, he liked to just chill at home. He was fine with a lockdown. If you have to go into quarantine, like, I'm good. I'm, I'm just going to hang out in my tent, right? Esau is the guy who would never wear a mask even if you told him you had to wear a mask. But here's the point. God's answer to how have you loved us is going back into history and saying, I loved Jacob and I hated Esau. What kind of answer is that? I mean, really, what is he saying here? I know some of us are, are having a hard time with this word hate. How could God hate someone? Good question. Uh, whenever you come across a question like that that doesn't seem to match the rest of Scripture, Here's a big tip on what you should do. You should go to the rest of Scripture to interpret Scripture with Scripture because the more you read, Scripture is going to make sense of itself. It's going to explain itself. So we see in Scripture that God so loved the world and that he gave us his son. God is holy, he's perfectly righteous, and he's just. He does hate sin. He will judge sinners and punish them, but we know that God is love. So so here's the biggest clue that we have in the New Testament to what God means here. Jesus talked about this. And in the Bible, um, like I said, you always want to double check your translation. Like, okay, what does this word hate really mean? Because it is translated from one language into modern English. There's, a, there's an anger, harsh, vindictive version of hate. And that means we... that. That usually means what, what we think of when hate. We're just like, oh, I hate that person. And then there's this other word, also translated hate, that we have in Scripture. And it's the same concept that Jesus referred to in Luke 14. Luke 14, 26, this is what Jesus says, using the same version of the word hate. Jesus says this in Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, now you might even be more confused, right? Okay, now Jesus is telling me to start hating my mom and dad. What, what is up with this? What is Jesus saying here? Because this will help us interpret Malachi. Jesus is not saying that to come to him, you have to hate your mom and dad. That's ridiculous, right? Plenty of scripture would contradict that premise. So it can't be right that, you have, um, that, 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 that that's the case. You have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. So what Jesus is saying is, 
you have to choose him over your family. If it comes down to pleasing mom or dad or choosing Jesus Christ, you have to choose Jesus. Hate in this context is choosing one over the other. God chose Jacob instead of Esau. Now, what happened to Esau? Well, you know, he sold his birthright to Jacob for some amazing smelling venison stew. That happened. Um, you know, maybe I shouldn't have been so harsh on Jacob earlier. He wasn't just an unproductive, like, dweller of tents who played video games all day in his mom's basement. He apparently had a thriving YouTube channel where he shared all of his foodie recipes. This guy was a good cook, okay? God loved Jacob. He, he hated Esau. What this means is that God chose Jacob over Esau, and Esau went his own way apart from God. In verse 3, God left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. And in verse 4, Edom, which is the Edomites, these are the descendants of Esau, they're left to ruin. God changed Jacob's name to the name of Israel. And today we have the nation of Israel, and the people from that heritage are called the Israelites. We don't know any Edomites today because they are gone. So think about this. God could have answered this question so many other different ways. But the answer to how do you love me is God chose Jacob and came after Jacob. Jacob wrestled with God, and God loved Jacob before Jacob ever even knew God. And God let Esau be Esau. He cut the rope and let him wander off on his own. It's a pretty heavy context of Scripture. I'm, I'm trying my very best to get to the, all the hardest passages of Scripture in, in one message here today. Um, we're already talking about Luke 14. We're going to go to Romans 9 in a minute. But where we're at right now, our headspace with our limited, finite human understanding is at a breaking point. How does this match up with everything else that we know to be true about God? Does this mean that God elects some and he sends others to hell? I mean, that's the question we're all asking, right? It's the next logical deduction. In our world, in our limited framework, if one plus blank equals two, then the blank must be one. But do you recall what Paul says about this when he was in the exact same space? Please turn with me to Romans 9. We're going to get there, finally. Romans 9, verse 13. Let's read this. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Oh, thank you, Paul. Thank you for asking the question that we all wanted to ask, but we just didn't want to say out loud. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I shall have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God's answer to their lukewarm apathy, to their coldness, God's answer is the doctrine of election. That wasn't the first answer that I would have, was going to go for, but that's Malachi's. How do you know you love me? Well, similar to what we saw in Romans 8, right? I chose you. That's how you know God loves you. 
He chose you. And when you see this with your own eyes, verse 5, you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So if you haven't figured it out already, election is the family secret. That's the family secret that I'm talking about. You know how families have secrets, right? Any, any family secrets that you have? You know, let me elaborate. I did not come up with this idea. This, this, this has been a way to explain election amongst Christians for a long time. It's not the kind of secret that you keep locked away or all hell will break loose, but it's the kind of secret that you just don't broadcast first thing. This isn't the number one thing you're going to tell everyone the first time they need to know God. You're not going to start with, like, with, with this one probably. If you're in Christ, you don't just go around telling everyone, God chose me, and he hasn't chosen you yet. I wish you could be more like me because I'm chosen. No, that doesn't come across well, does it? That's why it's the family secret. When we have it, we know it's true, but this isn't the front and center thing we shove down people's throats either. That would be horrible evangelism. The Bible never presents election with that tone. We present the bad news that you're a sinner we're all sinners in need of mercy and the grace of God. And then, because of that bad news in the place that you're hopeless without a Savior, we present the good news. And you see this over and over again in the Bible. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. But everyone who's in the family, and once they start reading the word and they grow in their faith, they realize something. God loved me before I first loved him. God chose me, and God saved me. And that's the way it has always worked. God chose Abraham. God chose Malachi. God chose you and I who know Jesus Christ. And we don't fully understand this because all who, have, who accept Jesus Christ to be the Lord and Savior by grace through faith are adopted. They are accepted in the beloved. They are elected. But what makes this the family secret? Our family secret isn't the first thing that comes out of our mouths. It shouldn't dominate what we talk about. But if you're in the family, you know it's true. And if you haven't come to learn this yet, that's okay. You're here today. This is God's word, and you're in on the family secret now. <laughs> the correct application of this family secret is not passiveness. The correct application isn't looking down on others and shaking your head at those who don't have it. The correct posture is, I can't believe he chose me. And let me tell you, the, the, all you have to do to be elected for God to choose you is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to confess your sin, to repent and believe on his shed blood and his death and his resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will be elected, okay? I don't understand how it all works out. None of us do, but that's what the Bible presents, so how do you love me? God's answer is, I chose you. He never gives you, you know, he, he, even if he never gives you another thing for the rest of your life, he's given you enough right here. So here's where this is crucial. Because of this truth, God saves the elect on his own. We were dead in our sin. We did nothing to deserve it. He saved you. How does this shift your focus and your perspective? When you have salvation, your relationship isn't based on merit now and pleasing God with your own good works. 
Nothing can separate you from his love. His love is unconditional. You can't mess it up. You can't do anything to make him love you less. You can't do anything to make him love you more. He already loves you with a perfect love. And you did nothing. God chose you, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his great mercy. So because of that, you can take heart. His love for you is never going away. Be encouraged that it's not on you. It never was. He loves you because that's who he is. God is love. God didn't love Jacob because of anything that Jacob did. Jacob was a deceiver. He was a manipulator. God loved Jacob because he is love, and it's his nature to love, and Jacob was chosen. Adrian Rogers said it this way. God doesn't change you so he can love you. He loves you so he can change you. Do you see this? This is where the application comes in, not just for Malachi's audience, but for all of us. This removes the arrogance. This eliminates bragging, all the self-adulation. What do you even have to boast about? How could you be entitled? God chose you when you were nothing. He gave you every value that you have in your life. This is a humbling truth, and that's the family secret that we should all treasure. God proves his love for us by showing his sovereign grace of election. And I know it doesn't all make sense. You know, we can't. But, but as I said a few weeks ago, it's, it's a good thing that we can't fully understand this and wrap our minds around this. Because if we could fully wrap our mind, our mind around God's sovereign election and in our responsibility at the same time to respond in faith, if we could understand that, we could, we could actually put God in a box, and that means that, that our faith could have been man-made. Who would have ever come up with this, humanly speaking? We never would have, right? But this is God's truth. There's always going to be some healthy tension here. Some family members lean heavier one side or the other, but this truth is not given to confuse the church it is given to comfort the church. We can't mishandle this truth and just start labeling people. Oh, well, not elect, moving on. No. You are called to share the good news, to compel them to come find their rest in Jesus Christ. So who's elect? The Bible, just to be perfectly clear, gives you that answer. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved from their sins is elect. Don't complicate it. Whoever believes in him will be saved, and anyone who wants to be adopted will be adopted. And since I'm quoting old pastors today in this message, here's another quote. When, when Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached on Malachi at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, someone came up to Spurgeon after the message and said to him, I can't get over this. I have such a problem with how God hated Esau. Even if I know that hate means he just didn't choose Esau, I, I can't believe God would do that. Here's Spurgeon's answer. Are you ready for this? <laughs> it's so good. Spurgeon said, oh, really? That's not my problem with this text. My problem is how God would ever choose Jacob. Think about it from that end of the perspective. Don't think about how could God not choose someone. Think about how God chose you. <laughs> God chose Jacob. He chose you. Let that sink in. Are you looking at this from your limited human perspective, or are you thinking about the truth that God chooses anyone? None of us deserve to be chosen. 
So worship team, you can come up here. Uh, and I want to talk about adoption for a minute. There's, there's a few families, a couple families in our church that are going through the process of adoption right now, and that's amazing. I love that. Julie and I have, you know, a family member who, who adopted a little boy overseas, an international adoption. And whether it's domestic or international, um, we have adopted brothers and sisters in our church right now who have grown up. Adoption, we love adoption in this church, and it's such a beautiful picture of the gospel. But after years and years of, of saving up and preparing to adopt our, our, our family member, um, you know, awesome, awesome couple. They, they weren't able to have kids. They wanted to adopt. And then during this year-long process, like it was like a four-year-long process, they actually had a kid. So they had another kid, but they still wanted to adopt this little boy overseas. They came over. They spent money, time, energy. They loved this kid before they even met this kid, right? They already chose in their heart that they would love him. No one would say to that couple, well, what are you doing? Why aren't you adopting all these other kids in this home, right? No, no one would say, just adopt them all. If you don't adopt every one of them, you don't love. No, no one would say that. They would say, wow, this is amazing. You are adopting this child. Do you see better now how you fit into God's narrative? How you can treasure the family secret? and rejoice in the truth of your election. Replace your apathy and your ungratefulness with adoration and obedience. And when you really get this, you have to share it. This isn't our exclusive club with our own lingo and our own jargon. No, God came after you. He rescued you, and he's calling you to get out there and pull others onto the life raft. If you are content in your own space and you're good with where God has you and you're not focused on the fact that God chose you when you didn't even deserve it and all you're thinking about is what's next, you're easily going to slip into this mentality, this cold, open mentality from a cold heart that's just, God, do you really love me? When the truth is, you don't have to look any further than he chose you. You can't treasure this if you aren't sharing it with others. That's the final take-home point, okay? You have to tell other people about this. You have the family secret, and you know that they need it too, so share it with them. We're going to sing, I Turn to Christ. I would like you to all stand up. This is going to be our response to this text. Some of you in the room today may need to actually run to Christ right now because you've never repented and confessed your sin and told Jesus, I believe you died for me. Thank you for sacrificing your life for mine. I believe. Others of us need to start living for what matters most. Turn off your pet hobby, the thing that's dominating your time, and start looking for ways that you can share the love of God that has been so graciously given to you. Let's sing that together.